Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Of Voice of Islam, um, I'm with uh, respected Daniel Zia. Daniel Zia, it's uh, the first time I'm actually uh, that's right working with you, and um, it's going to be an f- interesting experience um, working with someone. You know, building new sort sort of connections and seeing um, how things go, and hopefully we're gonna have a hopefully the connection works. The connection works, <laughs> and um, more in terms of you know what's been uh, what's what's like interesting these days. Uh, what's been you know the the buzz around? Well, the buzz around uh, in in my life, uh, and um, I would probably think yours as well. Something we we're talking about yeah. earlier, which which is the World Cup. Yeah. So the cricket World Cup, which is going on at the moment. Um, so yeah, plenty of action there. Unfortunately not uh, uh, really uh, great from the point of view from my point of view anyway so yeah the two teams that I have been rooting for England and Pakistan uh, both have uh, sort of lost their recent matches so it's not looking very good at the moment and for unfortunately from my vantage point yeah anyways it is it is early days as well so uh, yeah you know it's losses now um, can be caught up but the thing is uh, you know, a loss uh, later on, maybe in the tournament, could could probably be uh, very detrimental for those teams that we are rooting for. But, anyways, uh, coming straight to the show today, uh, there's a lot of you know interesting stuff in regards to what we will be discussing. So, uh, in the first hour uh, this evening, we will be discussing the declining uh, birth rates. Um, you know, what are the issues surrounding this subject and uh, how this has been tackled or how this is trying to be tackled um, from a more you know general way or a political way and what could the uh, everlasting effects of, uh, of this could be and uh, Daniel so what we what are we looking for in the second hour yeah so um i guess the the gist of the story is that uh, <clears throat> birth rates in in many of the uh, developed countries have been falling over the last uh, couple of decades actually yeah. Um, here in the here in Europe, um, UK is, an, is a bit of an exception, um, but uh, in many other countries in Europe, uh, France uh, being one of them, uh, birth rates have been falling, falling. And similarly, if you look at uh, Asia as well, if you look at Japan, if you look at um, um, even some of the other countries like Korea as well, birth rates over there have been falling as well. So it's uh, it's increasingly becoming a cause of cons- cause for concern because um, uh, you know you need. Uh, fresh um, blood in the labor in the labor market for an economy to continue to grow. Yeah, uh, which will be you know discussed. Very valid points, uh, which will be discussed uh, and will be tackled 
throughout the whole program and we'd also be listening to um, some of our experts as we usually do calling them in so kicking off it is not forbidden but rather permissible for a person to look after their children and other dependents because they are under their care such acts will be counted as meritorious and a form of worship and will comply with God's command commandment the essence is to perceive oneself as completely detached in this regard and nurture them purely out of compassion not for the purpose for cre- of creating successes but with regard um, and make us a model for the righteous this is from the Quran surah furqan chapter 25 verse 75 there is an there is never an excess of compassion and many people are in need not only overseas but on the streets where we live we don't have to go uh, we don't we don't have far to go to find someone to offer compassion a compassionate ear or hand in times of crisis and social unrest compassionate leadership can unify us as human beings like glue that binds us together in times of unrest without it we become lonely individuals facing challenges alone there are currently over 8 billion people in the world a figure that rises every day however when we look at this from a wider perspective things are not as they seem research recent research over the years has shown that although the global population has reached 8 million people the birth rate has declined rapidly over the years and although some may say that this is a positive thing due to poverty and economic improvement however there are many negatives to the falling birth rates some of which we will explore today absolutely yeah so this 8 billion uh, number yeah absolutely so the you know if you look at it globally uh, the number you know the number does seem quite a lot and and there is um, unfortunately seem to be a population explosion in in the developing world i think i think But, uh, sorry to cut you there daniel when i was um, you could say 15 20 years ago growing up in school uh, the 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 figure then was 6 billion yeah yeah 6 billion was something you could say okay anyone asks you what is the global population of the world you know 6 billion was the first thing that used to come to my mind if correct yeah so i would say that in the last 20 years it's uh, it, it has risen rapidly yeah. but as we will be discussing in the program there seems to be a rapid decline as well in in some part of the world anyway yeah. so yeah it's, it's it hasn't really um, grown propo- proportionately in terms of the resources that are available so in the years following the industrial revolution the as we were talking um global population actually has expanded quickly uh, by the end of the century the global figure um it is estimated could decrease for the first time since the 14th century black death The difference is that the main cause of the drop was death at that time during the 14th century but now it is because of the fall in the birth rate according to the economist uh, the uh, the magazine economist the world fertility rate was 2.7 births per woman in the year 2000 this was above the replacement rate of 2.1 at which the population is considered to be stable now this rate has dropped to 2.3 per woman and continues to drop should this rate go below 2.1 then the population figure begins to decrease many countries now have a fertility rate that is under the replacement rate this includes america india and china i mean it's um, you know these these are countries which are uh, you know global leaders as well and uh, 
it is interesting in the sense that the main continent that is expected to see an overall population decline in the intermediate, in, sorry, in the immediate term of 2022 to 2050 is Europe. A minus 7% growth is expected. Approximately 23 nations are said to have their populations halved by the year 2100. Well, that's a big number. With the replacement rate predicted to fall to 1.7. Researchers predict that by 2064, the global population will peak to 9.7 billion before dropping to 8.8 billion by 2100. Islam not only champions human rights and the rights of women, but it fervently teaches protection and love for children. Allah says in the Holy Quran, and slay not your children for fear of poverty. It is, he, it is we who provide for you and them. 6152. This verse has been interpreted to mean the slaying of both born and unborn children for the fear of poverty. In this verse, Allah protects the child the child's right to life and enjoins the parents to place their trust in Allah. Islam teaches that children are a blessing and their proper uh, and their proper rearing is a means of gaining Allah's pleasure. It is no wonder that wherever there is a Muslim gathering, you will always see children with their parents. Now, this is very, you know, because this is obviously Voice of Islam and there has to, we have to bring in a um, Islamic perspective, uh, which uh, we would argue is, you know, the right pr perspective. Um, this, uh, let's discuss this, okay? Uh, you know, what is, uh, as, as mentioned here, what is the importance of uh, life in regards to how God Almighty uh, tells us about it? And what is the, uh, you know, what is the importance of not just preservation of life, but what is more uh, in in its growth as well? Yeah, that's a very very important subject, and I and, and you've just read um, um, a verse from the Holy Quran, chapter six, one fifty two, which it says, "Slay not your children for fear of poverty." So, I think we we need to um, delve uh, slightly deeper into that. Let's um, uh, maybe now go to um, a first guest for the show. So we spoke earlier with James Tucker, who is a health analyst at the Office for National Statistics. Let's listen in to what he had to say. So uh, my first question to you, James, is if you could start off by giving us some more information about birth rates in the UK. So could you tell us how many live births there were in the UK this year and how does that compare to last year so yeah sure so there's six hundred and five thousand live births in england and wales in 2022 that's the latest year we have available that might sound like a lot but that is actually a drop of almost twenty thousand compared with 2021 and is actually the lowest rate we've seen in the last 20 years okay um so in this data is there anything that stands out or is there any trend that you can tell us about um, that you've identified in this data? So um, the, 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 the change um, in 2022, it's still, it's still in line with the recent trend of um, de a decrease in live births over the last 10 years. Um, so we did actually see um, a small increase in 2021. Um, which stood out a little bit. And there was some speculation at the time that that was related to a sort of post-COVID baby boom with uh, lockdown restrictions being lifted. But we actually think it's more likely to be due to um, the um, 
slight delays in people re um, re being able to register their birth. So it, you can imagine during the pandemic, it was harder for people to get to their um, uh, local registry office and it was um, registration office. And it was um, a little bit of a delay where we saw some of the births that happened in um in 2020 being recorded in 2021 um and could you tell us about the number of stillbirths and how they've changed if they have over the last year and do you, is there a difference yeah, sure, sure. between different areas in the uk and if so why do you think that is so the stillbirth rate in 2022 did decrease slightly to four stillbirths per 1,000 total births. And that small decrease was from um, 4.1 um, in 2021. But this is still higher than the rate that we saw before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so um, it's worth worth bearing in mind that um, the um, there is some sort of natural variation from year to year with um, small differences seen. And um, in comparison to, say, um, the 1950s, where rates were, stillbirth rates are about five times higher than they are now. Um, looking regionally, as with a, a, a lot of our statistics, yeah, there are is a huge amount of regional variation. So the highest stillbirth rates were um, seen in the northeast and the West Midlands, and that that they saw 4.3 stillbirths per thousand total births and um the southwest had the lowest stillbirth rate with um 2.9 um per thousand i'm afraid i don't um have any sort of um anything further on the reason uh, the reasons behind that but it is clear that there is a lot of regional variation okay and if you could just um end off by telling us what the process is in collecting such a wide amount of data and has COVID had any impact on your ability or the ease in you collecting this data? Yeah, so um, the registration of births, it's a service that's carried out by local registration offices and that's in, in partnership with the General Register Office in England and Wales. And the good thing about this from the perspective of having a really nice, complete set of data is that birth registration is actually a legal requirement. So that gives us a really comprehensive picture of births in England and Wales. So we have we have record of every, every single birth that happens. Um, coronavirus, um, the pandemic, the pandemic had a, a quite a large effect on lots of our data collections um so um one of the issues we did we we did see is um a um so, sometimes um, birth registrations being delayed presumably because people were unable to um get out and register births um due to kind of the various sort of lockdown restrictions that happened during the pandemic so um we don't think that had a massive effect in terms of on, on the trends or anything um we think it the, the it, it wouldn't really have impacted on that general picture of births um decreasing over the last 10 years but it could have been behind the small increase in births that we saw in 2021 where some of the delayed registrations from 2020 sort of rolled over into the following year okay uh thank you so much um for your answers 
today, James. That's that's great. No, um, happy to happy to come on and um, hope it's been really useful. Thank you. Welcome back to Voice of Islam. Um, you can contact us on 0208 687-7878 also you can tweet us on Voice of Islam UK so um, coming back to the subject I mean before right. uh, we were discussing before we heard the expert views on of James Tucker on this mm. I mean we were, we were talking about you know what's Islam's point of view there, there are some verses that we also presented and you know what is the you know what would you how would you see the importance of population uh, from an Islamic perspective. This could be answered in any way that's personal to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Islam um, is, uh, stands for um, uh, for fair play when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to both reproduction and uh, the rights of uh, children as well. Mm. And God Almighty states in the Quran that uh, uh, do not kill. Um, your children for the fear of hunger. Yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, you know, one excuse that that is being made, that's usually made in the West, is that you know we cannot, uh, we cannot bring our our children up, or it's it's difficult to um, a living uh, costs are expensive these days. So that is one reason that um, that God Almighty doesn't allow for mm. um, in Islam, and in, uh, and uh, Holy Quran categorically states that that's Allah's responsibility. Yeah. And um, it is then how those resources are actually shared between us here on Earth. That is really because it, uh, it becomes sort of a, a, an, an issue for us to to ensure that it's equitable and just. Yep. Because we just talked about, you know, we just gave some numbers. So there's eight billion people on the planet. There was there were six billion a, a few decades ago. So in terms of the overall growth. Uh, um, Oh, the, and and then there are some areas where population has declined, and some areas where population has increased. Yes, yes, there is hunger in Africa. There's hunger in some other places. But if uh, the, the Islamic idea is that is egalitarian, is that if resources, the world's resources, are shared equally mm. and justly, then there would be no hunger yeah. on earth. Yeah, um, you know that's more. It's 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 coming to the question of uh, let's say for instance anyone starting a family anyone's getting married uh, they sh you know um, this is more of a question uh, should they really be worried about you know um, my salary um, doesn't it, it might not allow for more than one child I mean they should not really be thinking about these things and you you, you touched upon them beautifully that it's 100% uh, God's uh, responsibility because he has said it in the noble Quran mm. that uh, we have provided you and we will take care of you. So um, now coming towards the subject of UK falling birth rates, ONS data has shown that there are there were 605,479 births in England and Wales. This was 3.1% lower than in 2021 and the lowest figure since 2022 so you can see the significant change this means that a that the number of babies born in england and wales has dropped to the lowest level in two decades now coming to that point where i said that i thought that two decades ago um population has risen massively now mm. that doesn't seem to be the case in england okay and when we ca we carry on with the uh, with with the discussion we might see that why we could discuss why does it seem as if that UK 
or England uh, is on the decline, whereas the world itself, such as you said, uh, you know, you mentioned China, India, these are two you know places where overpopulation population is on a stark rise. Uh, why is it so different? You know, we may we may be able to discuss this from a cu- cultural point of view, maybe. Yes, so um, there are several factors for that. So there is, um, um, uh, and it's not necessarily correlated to fertility issues. So according to scientists, this is, um, uh, a lot of this is uh, cultural. So uh, women becoming more educated, more work-driven, more career-driven, also increasing, increased use of contraception. And so now on the one hand, one may argue that a smaller population would reduce carbon emissions, deforestation. However, there are other factors like the labor force and other things which uh, uh, which everybody's not talking about uh, that must be taken into account. I mean, you, 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 we have to have bodies to be able to, to have a productive, um, uh, thriving society. Yeah. According to the WHO, uh, the Earth uh, contains seven times more food than the than the world population. There you go. Mm. So you know we were talking about it earlier. Sort of six billion or eight billion or you know even even if that goes to ten billion, who's going to feed them? So mm. you know these are official estimates of a United Nations body, the World Health Organization, and that states that uh, overall, when it look when we look at Earth um, uh, as one entity, there is seven times more food than the entire population. So mm. it, the issue then is not uh, more people born. The issue is, um, or overpopulation, the issue is really unfair distribution, wars, famine caused by those wars and injustices uh, on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, more in terms of war itself, uh, you know, that's quite an interesting subject. It's um, the first century itself, uh, not sorry, the first, the 19th century. that saw two extreme wars. Big okay. wars, yeah. Uh, the I can't exactly have a figure of how many people died because of those two big wars. Uh, you might have a better idea. I, could, I, I don't want to quote. Close to hundred million in both of them. Quote exactly, and then the famines in Indi- in India as well. Uh, all famines all across the world, where there is because um, India itself was. Uh, it's it's such a large country. Yeah. Uh, and it was obviously it was India, Pakistan, even Bangladesh. This was one massive area. Correct. So the amount of people that would die in uh, it were dying in those famines, they would be in millions. Millions, say, yes. yeah, millions as millions well. Yeah. So that century itself was, you know, one one century, which uh, maybe even with the growth of the industrial mm. revolution and everything, mm. it caused so much de- uh, death. Um, but that hasn't really been, uh, you know, it hasn't been on that proportion since. But do you think that the, this could something be something maybe in the future if, uh, you know, things head towards that? You mean famine? Um, um, not fam- I mean, famine is obviously a lot m- with the uh, with the, with the expansion of technology and, uh, you know, this World Health Organization, UNOs, charities. There are you are better placed in dealing with these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as compared to the 1900s, mm. I'm talking more in terms of war. Okay, war. Uh, it, you know, how how scary is war in this? Well, uh, actually, I'd link the two issues: uh, war and famine, because yeah. the famines that we saw actually in Egypt, for example, in yeah. the previous decades, in Ethiopia, um, in Chad, in other countries as well. They were actually caused by wars. They yeah. were actually caused by civil wars exactly, in those yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so I think there is a there is a linkage. And uh, as far as the future is concerned, yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
uh, war is uh, is obviously not a uh, there there are two wars happening mm. at the moment uh, one um, uh, in in Europe around the corner in uh, Ukraine and the other in the Middle East which yeah. is also not very far away and we have seen then in that in both wars children um, and women are dying yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that obviously wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't be great for uh, uh, for increasing population in 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 those countries. So yes, war obviously has a has a very very dangerous effect, and I guess that's a that's a much longer conversation and, and something again that His Holiness has been Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has been talking about a lot as well. Yeah, unfortunately, the world does seem to be heading towards more wars rather more than wars, less yeah, wars, wars, because um, because how do you, how the geopolitical um, state of the world at the moment is that the world is increasingly being um, divided into blocks. So there is uh, there's a huge anti-China uh, push in the West. Yeah. Um, there is um, and and we've seen uh, uh, Russia and China uh, allying. Um, as well, then there is um, uh, obviously the Western Alliance. So, uh, so there, 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 there are blocks, and we've seen already two wars. Before that, there was a war in Syria. Before that, there's there was a war in Iraq. Um, not to mention Libya as well. And millions of people have died in in those wars. So, you know, even in this century, we've already seen so many wars. Yep. Uh, just in the last twenty three years or so yep. of this uh, of this century, and unfortunately, it certainly doesn't feel like. That we live in a in a very safe environment, um, or the world is going towards the right direction, yep. where there will be no more wars. Because one one problem could escalate to another, exactly. and in, also in terms of the you know the advanced uh, technology in warfare as well. Yeah. So that isn't uh, something like you know it will obviously cause a lot more harm in this in the in the, in the coming time now another very interesting subject in regards to what you mentioned earlier was you know the general culture of people living and how they um you know you, you know you mentioned about the usage of contraception is is a lot more also uh, women i don't know it, it's it could be both really men and women uh, wanting to live more uh, independent lives. How do you? How, I mean, how do you see this? And uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think lifestyle has had a major um, impact on um, uh, on on our habits, mm-hmm. on the way we want to lead lives. Uh, there is this huge amount of increasing amount of me culture yep. everywhere, which um, which is obviously the exact antidote of. Uh, uh, a family structure yeah. or close close knit family taking structure. responsibility for others as well yeah exactly so yeah. you know that that comes in more of uh, you can understand this now from a current point of view because we live in the west we okay uh, me and you for instance we come from a more uh, south asian sort of background yeah. where we see the family structure as uh, you know, it's still gro- intact to a large degree. Yeah, I mean, you generally, I would say, I'm not saying that this is everyone um, who follows sort of our background, but yeah, you see your parents. It could be they they could be marriages which are arranged or in any ways, but then you see your parents, you grow up, you want to emulate them, and you want to carry on this sort of culture. Marriage mm. is a very important thing. Children they want to carry on mm. with the culture that you've given them. So this is like a relaying culture. Um, this in this day and age now you know how different was it uh, we were we would know we're fairly young people but let's say in the 60s in the 70s was this the norm uh, or what we see now 
in terms of the uh, a not not let's say a South Asian culture, but more of a would you call it a corporate culture? Uh, was this kind of the norm you would say in in the in the West or? Uh, uh, brother, Raza, I, I may look old, but I wasn't uh, around in the sixties. No, no, no. I said, I said, me and you are young. I didn't say, I didn't say. That's the thing. I, I didn't say, but I'm just, you know, you, I'm, sure. I, you're way more uh, versed with the world no, than no, I no, am. No, 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 absolutely, that's not the case. What, what I will say to that is that I think there's, it's, a, it's a bit, a bit of a misnomer as well. I think this, uh, um, the, the family structure. Um, or, or how the family structure is intact or not intact, I think is an east-west divide. It's not a Southeast mm-hmm. Asia or South Asia versus uh, West divide. Yep. Uh, you see this, um, uh, this, this culture of family structure being intact throughout Asia. You see yep. that in China, you see that in Indonesia, you see that in Malaysia, you see that in Japan. Yep. Um, and uh, however, that, you don't see that in the West. Mm-hmm. So you don't see that here in Europe, you don't see that in America. Um, so I think that there's a there's a huge sort of schism here in terms of how families are um, uh, families either stay together or not stay together, mm-hmm. and that obviously then ha- has a huge impact because you know there there there's an old saying which uh, goes around like um, it takes um, it takes a village to raise a kid. Yeah. So um, and and you know that has a, a much deeper meaning to it, mm-hmm. which is that you know it, it it's it's just more than two people yeah. um, uh, and, and these days actually in, in a lot of cases just single mothers or single fathers who are raising their kids mm-hmm. um, but y- you know even if you're a couple it takes m- even more than a couple to, to raise a healthy child because yeah. you know for a child to have a very uh, to have a to have a um, have, have a good personality have a complete personality uh, you, you've got to have these other extended relations. You've got to have aunts and uncles. You've got to have grandparents, and yeah. uh, and the children who uh, are known to have been brought up in those environments yeah. turn out to be more healthier psychologically yeah. than children who are not. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's a, that's a well researched fact. So and, and especially children who who come from let's say um, a, a divorced marriage. Uh, generally have had s- uh, generally have some sort of trauma associated with them which they then need to deal with later in in their lives so a fam- the family structure is uh, is hugely important here mm. and the breakup of the family structure i think is uh, unfortunately and, and by the way that i think i would say the breakup of the family structure is 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 a global thing mm-hmm. and that is happening both in east and west yeah Probably more so in the West, I'd say, than the East. But but it's, definitely, you would you would say that it's easier to break away from a marriage or from a family in the West as compared to some of the very important uh, ties and structures that mm. the you know you, the East has in in their in in, in their culture. Uh, it's not it's not so easier. Uh, it's not so easy for women to just leave their husbands uh, you or know, husbands or vice versa or, as well. yeah vice versa yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah you're, I think you, you, you've um, in, uh, hit the nail on its head that it, it, because of the uh, you know if, if there is a if there's a family involved then you know it, it, a, a marriage is then a union of two families yeah as, a, as opposed to just two, two people. Exactly. And, and there's a lot more involved. There's, yeah. a, there's a huge amount of involvement uh, of the grandparents and, uh, uh, and, and then there is um, uh, a, a lot more help mm-hmm. that, that you get 
and and then there is the, a culture of um, sort of uh, compromise and and making sure that you are actually because when, you know after after a certain time in marriage it's all about children mm. and that is because that's the next generation you're bringing up yeah and that is what islam really teaches and promotes as well that it's the next generation that you've got to really yeah. care about and think about and keep uh, uh, at at the foremost mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking about yourself yeah so um, when you when you think begin to think about the children then you you know then you have a more holistic approach and then you uh, then you think uh, less about yourself mm. and more about the other person. Yeah, and in think you know you also mentioned me culture. Okay, me culture is something where um you, you see these things for instance, you know, you see maybe family structures not working uh and then if children are involved, uh do you really want to take this extra headache in your life, okay? So a lot of people might just be uh, growing up uh, and seeing that it might not really be worth my while to even think about uh, having having to take care of a person so, mm. such as maybe your wife or whatever your spouse mm. and then on top of that children so that could also be you know a massive deterrent in terms of you know uh, seeing family structures not working but um that that's more down to perspective i think it's more down to perspective yeah. i think it's it's a matter of personal choice as well i i can give i can speak for myself and yeah. i can tell i i have three daughters and um um so i have a 20 year old and 18 year old and a 9 year old and um uh, we uh, until about 9 years ago we only had two daughters mm. and we absolutely didn't know what we were missing mm. um so when we had the uh, uh, the third child uh you know she's she became the darling of the house so she's um uh she's the most uh, spoiled creature on earth and mm-hmm. uh, and and she has three moms in the in in the older sister so yeah. um so i guess what what i'm trying to say is that uh, you know it uh, children um and and many people from from what i uh, people that i know of and uh, and uh, sort of move around with um uh have very enriching lives as a result of having children yeah. and uh very uh, much more fulfilling lives yeah Um, 100%. I mean you, you you would always see your friends and you would see your f- people who are elder than you you see their children uh you might not you you would you would see them in a light in light way in a kind way but you don't truly understand the essence of children once you have your own and you know you, you that that sense of this is mine okay you know me culture as well okay this is mine the child is mine uh y- that is literally a you know you've 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 beautifully explained it that is the fulfillment um that people might be missing if they are not you know thinking about it but you know we're not we're not here to promote people to go and have children okay everyone go and have children it is uh, it's just giving you like a view um and the more important subject itself is you know the declining but birth rate as we are and on on that actually i i will uh, go to the extent and say that actually this is this is what quran promotes as well yeah. that you that marriage is for the uh, for the purposes Purpose of, of yeah. uh, procreation procreation and um and again the idea is exactly what we were talking about the subject that you know if birth rates fall yeah. then it becomes uh, an issue for the whole economy yeah it becomes a worry for the planners that it, where are you going to bring the future labor force mm. like, you know you, you you will not have all robots uh uh doing all the things around you even th- as as much as you'd like you, to think that they would you've got to also you know 
that that's important okay that's so important because it, as we will go through uh, and we will understand why it's uh, why it's very necessary to have that you know that labor force prepared but you've also got to realize that you know just having children for the sake of hey children uh, you know who there is a very who's going to look after them okay uh, you you go into places where there are lots of children which are born without um, a registered father okay for instance uh, you know what kind of life do those children have okay so that's really important yes we should promote this uh, as Islam uh, advises the uh, right form of procreation um, which is marriage marriage yeah. and uh, taking responsibility yeah. uh, giving the name of the child to the thing as well, uh, to, yeah. to the child not the thing sorry to the child uh, giving him your name giving him a home giving them a home giving them a future yeah. uh, but then again you know isn't it's not always the case where uh, this is followed throughout the whole world and uh, that's maybe because of a lack of uh, so you know you've got to, you've got to understand when we talk about Islam you've got to understand that it's a, you that it's a whole very holistic system and it's a complete system uh, so you know you you know you you've got to follow the system in its entirety and the Islamic systems suggest that you know the that uh, the institution of marriage mm-hmm. in Islam is um, is uh, the uh, the right way of uh, um, uh, of procreation, yep. and once you do that, then uh, you ensure that uh, the father and the mother then they have their due roles and responsibilities, and that post roles and responsibilities then are fulfilled, and uh, and and the children then have rights yeah. uh, in the Quran as well. So Quran, um, going back to your earlier point, it, it just doesn't promote uh, procreation. Quran also then talks about the rights of children, the rights of wives, the rights mm. of husbands, the rights uh, of society, the rights of neighbors. Um, and uh, His Holiness actually has been talking about those, uh, all of those rights. And I think the last count he talked about, you know, 32 rights. Mm. Uh, if I remember correctly, I may have got that number wrong, yeah. of, of the different um, segments uh, within the society that Islam talks about and promotes. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complete system, it's a very holistic system um, that one, I think, needs to um, sort of look into. Okay, um, Daniel, so we have a caller who yes. wants to speak on the subject. Um, his name's Komsa, uh, uh, Mr. Kom, is he ready? Can I speak? Uh, how are you there? I'm here, it's Kayum here. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, brother. I mean, <laughs> um, sorry to mispronounce your name there. Uh, yes, uh, go on, Kayum, sir. We're, head, we're, we're listening to you. Uh, tell us. I, I, I just wanted to make a small point. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I think because because we come from South Asian background, yep. we, we, we tend to... Um, um, we, we tend to have a more definitive picture um, of how family structures are. Yep. Um, and we don't have that much access to other cultures and other backgrounds and, and other nationalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, it's too much of an... Uh, um, it, it's not as simple as East and West. I think, I think money has a lot to do with it. I think in London, irrespective of uh, which setup of which uh, nationality one comes from um, the family structure gets affected because of uh, because of finances because of money mm-hmm. whereas if you were to go to the north of England mm-hmm. um, you will find family structures very strong in Europe if you were to go to most of Eastern Europe mm-hmm. family structure is still very strong if you were to go to Ireland or Scotland family structure is still very strong 
And, and then you, what you will find is any country where there is still um, faith, people still believe in a faith, people still practice um, a religion, yep. family structure will still be strong there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's just a question of East and West anymore. I think it's, it's, uh, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit more deeper than that. Yeah, okay, so I think you make a very uh, beautiful point there because um, when we were discussing this, I had, um, you know, I, I, I've I've studied a lot of like Jane Austen, right? So um, Jane Austen, a lot of that, a lot of her works was, you know, she's just she's captured the uh, not just the family, but the high, the patriarchy, the ma the matriarchy, the structure of. Um, as as Kayum Sab's beautifully, you know, he's highlighted these areas of you know the United Kingdom, um, and the structure, the importance of the father, the importance of the mother, the importance of raising uh, children, uh, preparing them for the next, you know, for the next uh, phases of their lives. Yeah. So, and and uh, yes, Christian. I wouldn't say just Christianity, but religion generally holds a very important role in uh, the maintenance of that as well. So. Um, Jazakallah Kiyumsa for raising that point. Point taken, no sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you for your contribution. So right. We do um, have um, uh, another um, interview that we conducted earlier uh, to play as well. And that was with uh, Thomas Sabotka, who is a deputy director of the Vienna Institute of Demography at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. So Let's listen in. So, Thomas, my first question is if you could start off by telling us the impact that social economic factors can have on a country's birth rate. For example, what impact does someone's income or the area that they live in have on a country's birth rate statistics? Mm -hmm. So the issue is really complex because birth rates or fertility rates are affected by huge numbers of factors over time. Uh, if you take a really, really long perspective, the global shift towards very low fertility rates, which we observe across countries as they are moving towards higher income, more developed status, is driven by a combination of factors like improving education, especially among women, higher aspirations, which comes with this improved education, but also urbanization, higher incomes, economic development, and the progress in gender equality. And of course, also the technology, which includes contraceptive technologies, which, which allow us to control our pregnancies and prevent our pregnancies when, when, when we don't want to become pregnant or when women don't want to become pregnant with much bigger efficiency than in the past. But if you think about short-term changes in fertility rates in high-income countries like Britain, um, there are several factors which, which have relatively strong impact on fertility rates. Income is not so it's not so easy to dissect because impact uh, income often has a different impact on women and men's decision-making. For women, it is often less important, especially if they have a partner who earns, uh, who has sufficient income. But for men, income has a strong, very strong impact on, on their fertility decisions. 
It partly boils down to countries' family policies, whether, for instance, parents who have small kids can easily get support from the government uh, or from municipalities and companies, which, which allows them to bridge the gap in income they face uh, when their kids are very small and they, they lose some of their labor, uh, labor income during that period often. Um, area also plays a role, but, but how the role of the area translates into birth rates is more complex because it really boils down to who is living in the area and what are the rents in the area, what, what, what is the type of housing in the area. So it often boils down to population composition. In general, highly educated women still have fewer kids than lower educated women, but this gap is narrowing in many countries over time. And also many migrant communities in Britain still have higher birth rate than native British women, for instance. And the last thing I would mention are economic fluctuations and economic instability. When people face economic uncertainty, such as rising unemployment or inflation rate, which we are still facing in a very elevated level in the last year or two, that typically leads them to decide to postpone their fertility decisions until more secure times. So times of economic instability typically brings about declines in fertility rates. Um, okay, thank you for that answer. So I think it's, it's also clear that good quality healthcare is also important when it comes to um, birth rates. Um, and in rural areas or third world countries, for example, they they do not have this access to good quality healthcare. And because of this, are struggling with infant mortality. What do you think we can do to help those people? What do you think needs to be done to help people living in those areas where there is this struggle with infant mortality? So we are now speaking about low-income countries, especially in particular, because other countries have relatively low and some countries now have very, very low infant mortality rates everywhere, including in the rural areas. When you look at low-income countries, uh, then uh, high infant mortality rates are actually often found also in cities where many people live in slums and in unhygienic and uh, difficult conditions. So I think, I think infant mortality is also partly an issue of poverty and access to resources. Of course, healthcare matters a very, very great deal. And, but, but then that really boils down to how the country organizes its healthcare system. In some countries, there is a relatively dense healthcare network uh, including some rural clinics or, or the provision of healthcare in rural areas. That could be done also in relatively poor countries when the government distributes the resources more equally. Um, I can give you an example, for instance, of, of Iran, uh, which after the revolution in 1979, uh, after the Islamic revolution, had a very strong push towards improving the situation of people in rural areas and established a network of rural clinics where people can easily 
walk or, or travel to even from the most remote areas. So th that's one of the examples which every government, even in low-income countries, can try to go for uh, when improving access of, of people to health and, and also, of course, pushing down infant mortality rates. But on the top of that, I would say that much bigger impact today on, on birth rates have has the other factor I mentioned, and that's this access of children to education and uh, the improvement in education levels, especially among girls, because that equips them with the ability to process information, to obtain information, but also typically comes up with a different orientation towards a smaller family child, towards a smaller family size than, than uh, illiterate women in low-income countries have. Okay, thank you um, for that. Um, so we um, we live in a country where we have access to good healthcare, but I think in in countries like here, we struggle with something else. For example, mothers they struggle with balancing work life after and looking after their babies, and there's a lack of maternity leave in these countries. Do you think this is has an impact on falling birth rates? Yes, to some extent it does. Uh, in general, in countries where women face bigger struggles in and couples in general, I wouldn't I wouldn't say just women, when when couples face bigger struggles in balancing their career, family lives and private lives. And in countries where the governments do less or do uh, somehow their support is, is not properly targeted towards things which people need. In these countries, we often see birth rates plunging to lower levels than in countries which have better family policies, which also support couples in flexibly deciding how do they want to go about organizing their labor force participation and uh, life with more kids. I can mention the Republic of Korea or South Korea, if you want, where the gender inequalities are still very, very strong. The gender pay gap is the highest among the rich high-income countries. Women are still expected to assume many traditional roles upon marrying. Uh, the weight of childcare uh, the weight of pushing their kids to, to achieve the best possible education, but also of cooking, cleaning, all kinds of home care, almost exclusively still falls on their shoulders. And that also includes sometimes help with, with caring for, for the in-laws. So in this situation, it's very difficult. And in the very competitive environment of South Korea, it's very difficult for a woman once she marries to keep her career going on. And she faces very, very stark choices between having a kid or two or between trying to continue her career and sometimes facing a lot of discrimination in between. So the outcome is that many women decide not to marry and not to have kids, which is obviously very, very strongly contributing in, in South Korea, but also in other East Asian societies, to their record low birth rates, which are, by the way, much, much lower than we see anywhere in Europe. 
Thank you for that. And my last question is around COVID. COVID had a big impact all around the world in different areas of our lives. Can you tell us a bit about what impact it had on birth rates around the world? So we have statistics, especially for the higher income countries with, with good data collection. So I can, I can start talking about the experience of, of countries in Europe, North America, but also in Latin America and East Asia. And in these countries, most of the population researchers expected that COVID will come with a stark fertility decline because people will face all the uncertainties about the future. And this was also coming up from surveys done in the very early stage of the COVID pandemic, especially during its first wave in 2020. And the data partly surprised us because actually the expected birth decline did come, but in most countries it didn't last long. It typically came in the first stage of the pandemic. So, so if you add nine months, a typical length of pregnancy to the start of the COVID pandemic, we saw quite a substantial decline in births around December 2020, January 2021, in almost every country we looked at, with a few exceptions. But then the story became much more differentiated, with some countries seeing some increase in birth rates during the year uh, 2021, and some countries seeing relatively stable fertility or, or returning level uh, to the birth rate trends they had before COVID. And as if it wasn't enough for the surprises, the next surprise came in 2022 when fertility rates started declining again. And if you take nine months back from January 2022, you are in spring 2021. So these are pregnancies started at a time when people started going back to work, resumed their social activities, started being busy with all kinds of things outside of their families. But it's also the time when the vaccination drive started. And when we try to look at the data, it seems that some women try to postpone pregnancies at the time they were, they were being vaccinated as they were perhaps afraid of, of possible side effects or didn't know what the vaccination may bring to them. So this combination of return to, and more, busy, to more busy lives and also the short-term response to vaccination, just to be on the safe side, maybe postpone pregnancy by two or three months, resulted in another birth decline towards the end of the main stage of the COVID pandemic. And this, this decline is still going on, but now it's in 2023, it's more because of inflation, economic factors, decline in living standards, and also perhaps in some countries in Europe, the fear uh, of the of the war in Ukraine and, and other uncertainties about the future. All right, thank you, Thomas, for your time today. Thank you. Welcome back to Voice of Islam. Uh, you can contact us on 0208 687 7878. That's 0208 687 7878. Or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So, what is the solution? Is there a solution? The UK, amongst others has used migration as a way to increase its population and tackle the falling birth rates however this will be no, this will no longer be a solution once the falling birth rates 
results in a country po- a country's population decreasing. Uh, Professor Murray raises the points that we will go from choosing whether or not to open our borders uh, to fighting for, uh, for to fighting for migrants. Some countries have tried various ways to improve falling rates, such as free childcare, financial benefits, further employment ri- uh, rights, and enhanced maternity paternity leave. In fact. Sweden has increased their fertili- uh, fertility rate from 1.7 to 1.9. However, there are improvements still needed. A global solution is needed to tackle the issue, but this can only be done if falling birth rates are recognized as a problem. Yes, absolutely. And, and that brings us to, uh, to the end of this segment. Uh, we will be talking about a very related issue in the, in the next hour, which is about parenthood. Um, so, what is parenthood about? Is it um, is it about love, um, or can adopted um, children be also brought up um, in in the same sort of loving way? So, is it about DNA? Is it not about DNA? Uh, and how important DNA is? And, and so we'll we'll have that discussion. So do join us for that discussion by calling uh, us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We're going to break uh, now for the five o'clock news. But when we come back, it'll be about adoption, parenthood, and DNA. Do stay tuned. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Voice of Islam. You're with me with your host Rana Atal Rahman and I'm with Daniel Zia for the second hour. You can contact us on 0208-687-7878 if you would like to call in and uh, comment on on our comments or you can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Now, as Daniel Saab has uh, very beautifully explained the second hour's uh, subject uh, prior to this, um, you know, I don't need to further expand on it. He's explained it wonderfully. The only thing I can say is that the second hour subject, you know, it interlinks so well uh, as we, you know, we discussed the importance of uh, keeping the birth rate at a at a good level uh, and not allowing it to decrease and you know how to uh, maintain that from an islamic point of view in the right way and what are the importances of it um, uh, especially in regards to you know the addition of labor and uh, addition of uh, uh, just community as well and having someone to look after you when you're uh, when you're at your you know your the oldest part of your life uh, so you, you know you would need some sort of uh, companionship mm-hmm. but now we t- talk in regards to companionship itself. Uh, some people are not blessed uh, I'd, uh, to have, let's say, children directly. Okay, yeah. um, and some, some children don't have parents. Some children don't have parents. Um, and for this uh, this hour uh, or this subject, uh, we will be discussing, you know, the 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 wholesome and the most beautiful uh, subject of adoption. It's a very, you know, it's a very emotional subject for many. Uh, we must have uh, seen at some points in our lives how this aspect of life or adoption has, uh, you know, unfolded before us or within our within our families or people that we know. So, uh, becoming a parent through adoption is a journey filled 
with unique challenges and rewards. In this context, parenthood transcends biology and centers on the profound love and commitment of nurturing to a child. Adopting a child involves navigating the, complexi- uh, the complexities of, a, of the adoption process, understanding the child's needs, and embracing the joys and responsibilities of parenthood. So join us today as we discuss that family isn't just about blood, it's about love and care and people coming together to create a wonderful home for those uh, for those chil- for those children who need it. Islam teaches us uh, teachings, sorry, Islamic teachings stress the virtue of caring for orphans. The Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, himself an orphan, emphasized the significance of aiding these children. He famously said, I and the one who looks after an orphan will be like this in paradise, showing his uh, middle and index fingers and separating them. And so illustrating the immense reward for these, for those who care for orphan children. Now, uh, Daniel Saab, you know, this is uh, one, uh, the most beautiful part of this whole um, introduction that I've um, been blessed to uh, read out throughout the help of our excellent producers. You know, I I was I really was touched by this. That so you know the family isn't just about blood. Yeah. Okay, it's about love and care. Sure. Um, you know, how important is that? How important is uh, is it to uh, to realize that? Actually, I'd argue that family is all about uh, love, uh, whether uh, there is blood involved or not. And um, uh, adoption is an incredibly important uh, part of that system for for several heartfelt reasons, as you mentioned, uh, centered around love, family, well-being of children. Um, so adoption also gives um, children the chance to feel the love and safety of a caring child. Mm. According to Home for Good in the UK, during the year ending 31st March 2022, um, a heartwarming 2950 children were adopted making uh, marking a 2 point, a 2% increase from the previous year the average age of a child at adoption is 3 years and 3 months highlighting how children of various various ages are finding their lovely families let's now maybe go to our first guest uh, for this segment who is Alison Woodhead Alison Woodhead is the director of public affairs and communications at adoption uk charity assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome to the drive time show many thanks it's nice to be here thank you uh, the pleasure is all ours so um, alison what is the process uh, when someone is thinking of adoption well, well, really, the first thing is um, to, to sign up for an agency, and there's a, a place on our website where you can you can search for an agency. But basically, if you just Google adoption agencies near me, you will find a list of local authorities and a list of so-called voluntary agencies that any any of which you can go for. And that's the first stage. It doesn't commit you to anything, but it's a it's it's the first stage along the journey. And really, this is all about doing your research. So signing up for an agency, um, going to the Adoption UK website. We have a free prospective adopters uh, meetup group, which meets every month. No need to be a member. You just come along to that. You'll meet other people in the same situation as you. And really do your reading, do your research, get some support from others going through the same experience. And and then the second um, part of the process, once you've found your adoption agency and registered with them, is called preparation, um, <clears throat> where you work with um, a social worker who comes to uh, meet your, your family, find out about your home circumstances, your motivations to adopt and so on. 
and then we'll take you through um, all being well to the, the approval bit of the process where you're approved to adopt. And then it's really a waiting game. Where, um, it's, it's, it's called family finding, where social workers will try and find, um, <clears throat> trying to trying to match you with a child that's who's waiting for for, for an adoptive family. Um, so those are the three stages to the journey, and um, some people whiz through those quite quickly. Others, it takes a long time, and there are lots of reasons for that. But um, but yeah, that's the that's the process for everybody, and everybody has to go through that process in the UK. So, Alison, you know, you've explained this uh, wonderfully, and uh, you've explained the stages as well. But for some people, you know, these these stages they could come across as a very difficult and long process. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, it can be, and, and I guess the first thing to say is that these these children are um, traumatized. You know, they're not. It's not like parenting birth children. Well, a lot of it is. You know, the boring bits. You've got to get them to school. You've got to get them out the door. You you've got to play. You you want to play with them. They're going to have friendship groups. You know, all are you know, going to go to the supermarket. All the normal things to do with family life. But but. Some of it is very different. Um, these are all children who um, have had very, very tough starts in life, and that doesn't just end because you give them a loving home. These are these are kind of traumas that can last a lifetime, really, and so mm. you need to be well prepared for them. And that's that's a lot of the reason why the process is is takes a long time and, and can be quite intrusive. Um, mm. People can find it quite intrusive. But it, it's also about choosing an agency that seems to get you, seems to understand you, um, has placed children with families like yours before and has a good track record in that. And that's a little bit of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And then just get loads of peer support um, uh, from, from people who are going through the same process of you as you or have been through it before you. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned uh, the, the difficult... Um uh, 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 maybe the pro- the process itself, but also the difficulty when you actually have a child and and you know they um, they bring their traumas and they obviously bring their past with them. And I guess probably the um, uh, the older the child, I guess it will be the more difficult it will be for the child one would imagine to adjust to the new family. So what what are some of the major challenges uh, that you see for both an adoptee and the the parents who are adopting? Yeah, I mean, sadly, it's not always the case that the the older the child. Well, sadly, it it, it isn't always the case that the mm. older the child, the the more um, challenges they bring because children can have things like um, experiencing um, alcohol addiction while in the womb. They can um, they're much more likely to um, have uh, neurodiversity. That's that's uh, because of brain damage and 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 the way that the brain is widened in the very early um, years uh, months of life so that's always mm. not not always a done deal that if you get a baby or a toddler they're going to be um easy. going to be easier to parent mm. but um but i mean there's no doubt that trauma in in all its forms is hard to live with as as an adoptee and it is hard to parent um and and those those things can you know these these children often have learning difficulties um they have they can experience difficulties in forming um relationships um and they can have health problems, like I've already mentioned. Um, it's common to have um, neurodiversity, such as ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder, things like that. But on the other hand, the rewards can be immense. So, you know, parenting a child who's had a tough start in life, you are giving that child the chance to thrive, and that's enormously rewarding. Um, and you, you, you are 
essentially giving that child the chance to live their best life and to reach their potential that's rewarding for them and it's great and it um and, and rewarding for you um i think the, the the big thing for organizations like ours is that although support for adoptees and adopters is improving it's not improving fast enough and so you know, we're we're campaigning for the changes that need to happen in order to make sure that um, families and individuals have the support they need to overcome these these difficulties. So what sort of support is available then for, uh, especially for those who are adopting and adopting, you know, bringing in um, uh, another member from outside the family into their home and it's, it's the first experience for them? I mean, as, as I've mentioned a couple of times about peer support and, I, and that, I, that really, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. Mm. So being able to connect to others who've been there, done that, or, or are walking along the journey at the same time as you can be life-changing and, um, you know, really, really urge people to... We, we've got free online forums as well as um, community groups, including actually a Muslim adopters community group, so that's worth all checking out on our website. Um, but then there's also therapeutic support, so every family is entitled to a, a kind of basic package of, of support, from social workers, um, especially trained social workers. Um, and then um, there's also uh, more kind of intensive therapeutic support. There is a thing called the Adoption Support Fund, um, which um, is run by the government in England, which provides um, funding for people to get really highly specialised therapeutic support. So there is support out there, but people still report that it's too much of a struggle to get that support, so that's what we're working to improve. So, Alison, finally, do you think the adoption process needs to be adjusted? If so, how could it be adjusted? Well, I think the first thing is to make sure that everybody can get the support they need whenever they need it, regardless of where they live. In the UK, it's a bit of a postcode lottery at the moment, so we're working to try and improve national standards so that everybody gets the same support everywhere. So that's I think um, I think uh, adoptees themselves need a lot more support. So setting up, you know, youth support networks and support for adult adoptees. Hello, Alison, are you there? We, I think we've lost her. Um, I think we've lost our caller, Alison, yes, for now. Yes, we've so lost our guest, Alison. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and uh, connect back uh, with Alison. Um, uh, but yeah, some some really interesting uh, uh, bits yeah. that uh, she shared. So, so number one, that uh, yes, uh, of course, the, you know, this is something can be a beautiful experience, but also that there is some help available um, out there, uh, yeah. both for those who are um, adopting as well as uh, those. Um, uh, who um, who are being adopted as well? Um, c- can we check if she's back online? Hi, Alison. Can you hear I'm us? I'm here. I'm here. I'm so, so sorry. I don't know what happened there. Okay, right. Not a worry. Um, so, g- Alison, I I had a question actually around um, uh, around the number of children that actually um, are being adopted. So, uh, I don't know how to frame the question correctly, but um, for want of a better expression. G- g- uh, are all the children available for uh, adoption in the UK being adopted? That's a good question. I mean, so there are about 3,000 children a year who are adopted in the UK. I think um, the, one of the problems is that certain groups of children um, 
wait longer or, or spend longer in foster care. So most of children are adopted from foster care, so they don't come straight mm. from their birth families. They they are removed from their birth families into care, um, and 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 some children leave care quite quickly for adoption or you know other other routes or go back to birth family others spend a lot of time and can sometimes spend their entire childhood in care so those groups unfortunately include um, ethnic minority children although um, it tends to be black african boys who wait the longest um, and and that that is a real problem so we're, we're working hard in the sector to try and encourage more more families to come come forward for those children but it's also sibling groups um, and children with disabilities and slightly older children who wait longer. So, so really, it, those are the sort of priority families, I suppose. The ones who are willing to take children from those groups will be matched with a child more quickly. And then, obviously, um, it's, it's, it's wonderful for those children because then they get to move quickly into a, into a loving family. Um, Alison, maybe you can, can you take a couple of minutes to explain for the benefit of our listeners the difference between foster caring and adoption? Yeah, sure. So um, with foster care, the children are still the responsibility of the state. So you are um, their sort of day-to-day parent, I suppose, but you do not have ultimate responsibility for that child and there are some decisions that you can't take on their behalf. So, for example, you can't just take them abroad for a holiday or, mm. or um, you know, have them undergo an operation or something like that because you don't get to make that decision. One, well, once a child has an adoption order and you are their legal uh, a, a, a parent you are essentially their parent they have a birth certificate with you named as their parent and you are then there you, you have full parental responsibility for that child right excellent that was a very enlightening uh Alison, thank you so very much for joining us today on the drive time show um we've learned a lot and i'm sure our parent, our, our, our listeners uh, uh and those becoming uh, or wanting to become parents have uh, learned a lot as well thank you so very much for your time uh, peace be with you likewise Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Alison Woodhead, who is the Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Adoption UK Charity. Uh, wow, very, very interesting. So, yeah, um, not only that, there is a huge difference between uh, foster caring and uh, and adoption, but, uh, but also that um, uh, I, there is a lot more help available as well when you when you adopt children and um, you can, um, as, as, as parents, um, you can resort to that uh, the help. Choose this avenue, especially if, um, as we mentioned, that if it's not really in your, uh, if it's not really working out for you, mm. uh, adoption is a very, you know, it's a very wholesome uh, way of life. So um, picking up from where you left off, uh, adoption gives children the incredible chance to feel the love and safety of a caring family. According to Home for Good in the UK, during the year ended, uh, ending 31st of March 2022, a heartwarming 2,950 children were adopted, marking a 2% increase from the previous year. The average age of a child at adoption is three years and three months, highlighting how children of various ages are finding their loving families. However, it is important to note that the that this increase 
is relatively modest, especially when compared to the 18% decrease in the previous year. The pandemic played a role in this decrease as court cases moved more slowly or were put on hold, affecting the adoption process. This underscores the significance of adoption, as whilst children are being adopted, we may still have a long way to go. Furthermore, a survey conducted by Adoption UK asked 3,500 people why they chose to adopt. The results revealed that over half of the parents, which is 58%, decided to adopt because they faced fertility issues. So, for these couples, adoption became their path to fulfilling their dreams of becoming loving parents and creating a family, while also giving children a warm and caring home. Adoption service <coughs> adoption serves as a lifetime for con- for countless children, offering, the, uh, offering them the chance to leave behind institutional settings or foster care and find a f- and find a forever home filled with love and care. It's eye-opening to realize that across the world, approximately 5.4 million children are currently living in orphanages. Emphasizing the vital role adoption plays in providing these children with love and stability they need. So, uh, just building on this, uh, 5.4 million children currently living in orphanages around around the world. Um, mm. You know, what is uh, obviously adoption is a is a is a solution, but it's uh, a big number. It's right? a massive number, and how do you you know this this is like saying how do you for instance, if there are children in Africa or in Asia, uh, in more of the you know impoverished parts of the world, you know how how is it possible to somehow bring them uh, towards families who are desperate towards uh, you know ha- adopting? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a, a, when the the available pool is so large, I guess uh, all of us, I mean, as as a society, as governments. Uh, need to think about how we can... I mean, this is not just a UK problem, as you're saying. This is a global problem. And, um, uh, I, I, uh, you know, the other day, actually, we watched this movie um, called Lion, which yep. was uh, which is about this uh, this great adoption story mm-hmm. um, uh, of a couple adopting uh, um, two boys from India, um, two lost boys and, uh, and and thought to be orphaned mm-hmm. um, and, and took them all the way to Australia and they um, one of them had some mel- mental health issues but uh, they were able to provide them uh, with, um, with with the resources and with the education and with the facilities that uh, they couldn't have imagined uh, uh, Daniel we'll, yeah we'll come back to this uh, yeah. you know very uh, important you know it's a very interesting subject of the movie as you said I mentioned Lion uh, right now we have uh, Irene Levine on Lion as our guest caller uh, Irene is a managing director at Corum IAC uh, Irene are you there welcome I to dri- the drive time show lovely to have you thank you for inviting me um no, no problems at all. Uh, how many children in the UK are waiting for adoption and is there a demand for adoption? So Yes, there is. So um, at the moment, there's approximately about 2,000 children with the last figure in, in 2022 was identified. So um, 2,000 children needing adoption. Okay. Um, and there were 3,000 children who were adopted during the course of that year. Okay, that's um, a very... Very, very significant demand. So there very much is a demand. All those children require 
uh, need family um, and it's finding the right family. So we have a lot of families who might be waiting for adoption, but they're not necessarily families that will be able to meet the needs of the children that need adoption. Mm-hmm. Before you came, um, Irene, we were talking about... Um uh, you know this movie Lion, which I, which I don't know whether you've seen or not, but it, it's about cross-border adoption. Is that something that happens a lot in the UK? In your experience, that you know, uh, people in the UK adopting children from outside, maybe from Africa, other countries, and similarly, UK children being adopted by somebody maybe in the United States. Yes. So my my organisation, the Voluntary Adoption Agency that I manage, is actually an inter-country adoption agency. So we work with, and we do most of the inter-country adoptions, so we approve about 50 families every year, um, and most of those are heritage. So people, Indians going back to India, Africans to Africa, Pakistan to Pakistan. So we, our organisation does the assessments and does the work that's needed when a family wants to go to another country to adopt a child. And so um, there's probably, I think the DfV who does the piece of work in relation to the children coming in with our we're talking, there's probably about 60 placements every year um, into country. Right, so all of these from the adoptions that actually do happen in the UK, uh, what sort of success rate do we have? Do we know what what proportion of those adoptions are successful? Um, oh, gosh. I actually don't know. The majority of the adoptions are successful. Okay. It's unusual to have disruptions. Um, so there, w- there will be disruptions, though, and often because if you're placing older children or children sibling groups, um, that makes it quite difficult in terms of making the match. And there's a lot of work that goes into it, but um, placements do break down. So the number, I'm really sorry, so I haven't got that figure in front of me. Don't worry. I don't want to say. But there are, but adoptions generally in this country are very successful. Most adoptions um, work. They work, might have struggles in adolescence mm. at various points, but the adoption, the adoption does work. So, Irene, as you say, uh, they they sh- mostly do work, and uh, we we would always hope that they they always do work, or most of the times they do work. But what happens if an adoption does not work out? So. That depends on, on a number of things. So depending on the age of the child. So if it's a young child that's been in placement for a while, they will, uh, the local authority will receive that child back into care and will look for an alternative placement for them. Mm-hmm. If we can't find another adoptive placement for them, then they will um, look at long-term foster care. They will definitely now we're very clear that children need permanence so we will look at finding a permanent home for those children often it might be a foster carer who will then take an SGO say mm-hmm. a, a special guardianship order out which means local authorities can step back from doing the the support that they do in, in the interruptions in children's lives so it's finding a permanent family and if adoption we're not able to find an adoption placement for that child, then it would be looking at alternative permanent care, which can be a range of things. And sadly, for some of the older children, that might be residential, but ma- mainly we're finding foster placements and, um, and making those into SGOs or continuing foster pl- long-term foster placements. Mm-hmm. So given that, um, Irene, you said that most of the adoptions in the UK are successful, would it be safe to assume then that uh, adoption generally has a 
positive effect on the mental and emotional well-being of the adopted children? So I would say yes. We know that there are a group of people who are raising the question about is adoption the right thing and severing family ties, um, and that it has it can have a negative effect. But the, the, for the vast majority of children, they if they are placed in positive, good, strong, loving homes, that brings about positive mental health and emotional well-being. Um, but there are challenges in some of those, and we know that some people who are adopted um, have struggled with mental health. Um, and often that may be because of the level of trauma that has been suffered before they would have gone into their adoptive homes, and that the adoptive homes then haven't been able to address some of those issues in the way some of the some of the traumas and some of the um, are so significant um, and can be quite difficult and if we we don't have the services one of the issues that we are dealing with in this country now is making sure that we provide um the uh, support services that adopters need you know often we in the old days we used to place the child and think just putting him in a loving home would solve everything we know now that's not the case that the trauma that's impact on children around separation and loss from very early is all around abuse actually what we need to be doing is investing time energy and money in, and supporting families managing that trauma and supporting those children with therapeutic inputs and support mm -hmm. um and and it's very difficult to get those in in a timely fashion to make sure that we are preventing the breakdown of placements but also making sure that we're supporting those children in those placements and maintaining those family um connections so do, do do you have a view, um, Irene, on um, or do you have some uh, some maybe stats in terms of uh, uh, those who do end up adopting? Are they uh, are they first time parents or they um, they're already have other children and they're just adopting another child? Um, I think a lot of families choose to adopt because they're not able to have children of their own. So there's, mm. a, there's a whole group of people that are first time parents. But there is also a whole group. Uh, there are also people who have had one child, or may have had children, and they've grown, and they're coming back and to uh, and providing homes. So it's a, it is really a mix and, um, of people that come forward for adoption. So Irene, well, you know, you, you would know best about what are the challenges and benefits of transracial adoption. So um, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of the challenges, the challenges are ensuring that you're finding the right families who understand and are able to go and go, be, go beyond superficial cultural differences of caring for a child and actually um, ensure that the child's racial and cultural heritage is represented in meaningful ways, that they integrate culturally relevant traditions, holidays and rituals into your everyday life, not just for the child, mm -hmm. but for the whole family to celebrate. Um, and take time to know on a day-to-day -day basis what it is like for your child living in your family. Mm. One of the most important things which often gets left is where is that family living? Is the child going to be isolated? So mm. ensuring that they're living in an area where that child is not going to be isolated, that can see themselves reflected, where there'll be role models, there'll be people in the friendship groups of the, of the adopters who actually are the same heritage of that child. So if you really 
the, the challenge is, is about, it's not just about love is enough, and as long as you're loving that child, everything's mm-hmm. going to be okay. It's making sure that you really see the child and integrate that child and help them understand their identity, um, make them feel good about who they are, um, and, share, and sharing that information with them. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, and the challenges are so often we think in historical but it isn't. It isn't. We have to. If we really want healthy, strong, um, well-adjusted children growing into adults, then it's about making sure that we've put in place the things that they need to support them as they grow. Um, and the benefits of that means that if we can't find ra- uh, racial matches in terms of placements, if we've done the work with those adopters, we know that, the same as we say with adoption, that actually providing security, permanence, a family life, family home for these children will bring out benefits for them. So if we get that, if we get that right um, and, that the tra- and that the adopters have been appropriately assessed, prepared, have done the homework that they need to do, live in the right areas they need to live, really understand racism and the impact it will have on their child and on them, um, being the parents of a child of a child of a different racial identity, then actually there's some real benefits of that in that. Excellent. Thank you so very much, Irene. It was really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for making us wiser. And I hope um, this is um, uh, uh, this is actually uh, rekindled uh, interest uh, for adoption uh, among our listenership. Thank you once again. And we definitely need. We definitely need Muslim um, adopters to come forward and, and um, people because <coughs> in terms of need for sibling groups and in terms of, yeah, the children, on uh, the, the older children is what we need and sibling groups. So, yes, please, if you're interested in adoption, please find out about it. Um, thank you. Thank and you. Give me- no, thank you. Thank you. Really a pleasure to speak to you, Irene, and have a wonderful day and uh uh, and the rest of the week uh, as well. Peace be with you. So that was Irene Levine, who is Managing Director at Coram IAC. Let me now go straight to our next guest, who is Audrey Bouazizi, who is the Head of Service at Adopt London South. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Alaikum assalam. Peace be with you. <laughs> Peace be with you. Audrey, did I pronounce your last name right? You did, yeah. Oh, thank you. Excellent. That's that's a weight off my shoulders. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, right. So uh, tell us a little bit about your organization. What sort of adoptions um, does your organization facilitate? Right. So we are a domestic adoption agency and we provide adoption services um, to children, usually based in, in the domestic arena. Your previous caller, Irene, works very closely with us. So any international adoptions that come our way would go through Coram IAC um, because we have a partnership with them whereby they do that piece of work. But generally, we provide um, domestic adoptions for children who are UK based. Right. Okay, so um, what is the average waiting time for adoption in different parts of the country? 
So I, I can't speak about the average waiting time in different parts of the country, but what I can say is that uh, last year, 22 to 23, we had uh, just over 2,000 children who were waiting for adoption. We do have some specific groups of children who may wait longer than others, um, and that's because of their particular needs and making sure that they have the right adoptive home to meet those needs. So it's very difficult to say um, how many people or how long people are waiting for. But what we can um, look at is the overall picture. So we have children say, who are aged over five would traditionally wait maybe up to seven months longer than, than somebody who's younger. Um, children from black or black mixed heritage backgrounds would also wait longer. Children with additional needs or complex needs may wait a bit longer as well. So Audrey, what are the range of costs involved when adopting a child in the UK? So adopting a child in the UK, there's no cost attached to it. We don't um, take a fee. If anybody wants to come to think about adopting a child, um, that, that, that service is provided free at the point of delivery. So mm-hmm. we make sure that we take people through the assessment process. Our adopters are very well trained, very well prepared, mm-hmm. given lots of information prior to starting. Um, there's ongoing training even when they're approved as adopters. So there is actually no fee. That's not to say that um, adopting doesn't cost any thing obviously it costs to be a parent you know you do have to be able to provide for your child and make sure that they've got um, what they need the basics of what they need and you know some savings wouldn't go amiss for those times when things get a bit trickier and a, a little bit harder mm-hmm. but there's not actually no cost associated with adopting mm-hmm. so uh, what kind of support do you offer before during and after the placement so we offer a range of support. So like, like I say, prior to placement, um, adopters would have a social worker that they are working alongside to you know, continue to grow their understanding. I don't think anybody ever comes to the point of uh, placement of a child thinking, that's it, I'm fully formed, so there's nothing more to learn. So we walk alongside our adopters throughout their journey. So some adopters, you know, their, their, their beginnings are very easy. We might see them come back when their children are teenagers or when they're a little bit older, or we may even see them come back with their children to support them finding out more about their own identity and their their, 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 their family of origin their birth family um so there's you know the support goes all the way through it kind of it covers a range of um support so it might just be i need to talk to somebody about something mm-hmm. or is there anybody else that i've kind of that's gone through this that you may be able to kind of link me up with we call that a buddying up service mm-hmm. it's kind of like informal mentoring but then also you can you know get support from uh, very um well highly trained um workers who have training in specific therapeutic approaches for example dyadic developmental psychotherapy we, we call it ddp for short in the industry mm-hmm. um so you could you know get that range of support you may be able to access workshops groups <coughs> with other people um you know there's a range of support that's available to adopters in some cases um you know dependent on what the child's needs are there may be financial support but can, uh, that, that you can get from the uh, child's local authority, dependent on what the child's needs are. If you have a child maybe who has a disability, they may need adaptations to your home to be able to safely care for the child, the local authority may very well be able to assist you there. So it, it ranges from signposting, information, advice, guidance, to walking right alongside you with your journey and giving you uh, professional advice or professional therape- therapeutic access. Um, so thank you very much for your time, Audrey. You've um, given us a lot to think about, um, you, know, to, to, you know, a lot of information and very useful information in regards to adoption.
Oh, thank you very much. It's been great. And can I can I just add this week? Obviously, we are in National Adoption Week this week. So yep. if anybody wants to find out more information about adoption, you know, come along, come and see us at um, www.youcanadopt.co.uk forward slash National Adoption Week 2023. You can find out more information there. And if anybody's keen, get in touch with your local adoption agency and chat with somebody. <laughs> Thank you once again, Audrey. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Take Thank care, you Audrey. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, have, a, have a lovely day and the rest of the week. Really a pleasure to speak to you. So that was Audrey Bouazizi, who is the head of service at Adopt London South. Let's now go straight to our next guest uh, who um, has called us in. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Um, who are we talking to? Good evening. Good evening. Can I have your name, please? <laughs> Hello. Um, my name is Hasina. Right. Hasina, what would you like to say? Um, okay, you know, I'm just checking if you're getting any feedback on this call because I'm listening to you on my car radio. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to put, I, I missed some of the, the program, but essentially I, I got bits and pieces of talking about parenthood and this is, um, and about uh, population and so forth and so on. So I just thought I would put my little bit in there. Um, I am a, a, a mother, God bless, and um, grandmother and great-grandmother mm-hmm. uh, living in London. And I'm from Jamaica. Right. Um, and in our family, we always used to traditionally just take people to live with us. And yeah. even though I've been living in England here, I brought up my family with what one might call, I call them my adopted children or foster children. I don't like the title, but we just live like one family. I've never been paid by social services or anything. Mm. You know, people have sent their children to me as teenagers when they maybe can't manage, (laughs) I don't know. And similarly, my children have gone home to my country and lived with uh, other people and gone to school, etc. And it's all very informal. And I just wondered if, um, people here are still living that type of lifestyle um, and if they're quite comfortable with uh, taking in, adopting children um, as just a normal part of the family rather than going through the social services. I, I wanted to know how hmm. people feel about it because you know I know I don't work for social services but I have a lot of experience with them hmm. in elderly care and all sorts of things I don't want to go into right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, England has a lot of strict rules about health and safety and so forth, which it's good, it's commendable. Mm. But I wonder sometimes if our people are put off, um, you know, helping out another family yeah. who is not their so-called biological family, right. as we would do back home mm. because of all these rules. I was never put off. I mm. was never put off and I've had to deal with the CAMS people, you know, that's the mental health for the adult, mm. adolescents. Mm spoken to them and I've told them I will take a child but you know what and this was a child who chose to come to me as a teenager mm-hmm. um, and her mother was very happy uh, she, their family were from Africa but I had to speak to the camps because this young lady apparently was under their care because she'd mm-hmm. been running away from home and I just said to them well I'm quite happy to take her she's chosen to come to me that is an honor in itself 
However, you've got to let me have a free hand in how I'm <laughs> going to raise her because I've worked in children's homes and I've seen. And, and she'd be living in your home. So, yeah, you have yeah. the right uh, to be yeah. to be that mother. But firstly, Basina, you made a couple of great points. I, the first thing I'd say is that there are not enough people in the world like you uh, who, um, who have that big heart. Uh, who can take other people in their own families. And, uh, you know, it's really people like you who make this country worth living. So so thank you very much for that. Um, the second thing that I would say is uh, that, unfortunately, I, I think in the uh, in the age that we live in, it's, it's become so much about me, myself, and, and myself. Mm-hmm. And it's all about my space and my room and... Uh, and whatnot that you know that uh, that notion of uh, of collective family or uh, that um, uh, that uh, that you know uh, cousins sort of um, um, you know being brought up together or even um, uh, uh, you know forget about neighbors so I think that is becoming more and more extinct unfortunately in the society that we're living in so so I, my sense, unfortunately, uh, on what you just said is that, uh, you know, th- there are not enough people like you. Mm. <coughs> um, Hazina, I would like to maybe add, uh, you know, you've had a very, you've asked a very, uh, you know, personal, I would say, question as well. It, it kind of resonates, um, I could personally re- relate to it. Um, I've seen, um, I've seen b- brothers uh, in some communities, they have taken in or given some of their children at a very young age to uh, another one of their brothers because that mm. brother couldn't uh, have children. Yeah. Okay, so that fa- that brother has pretty much raised that child, or the or that mother who has now adopted his um, this child has raised the child in the sense that that child only uh, re- relates to that lady or that 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 adopted father mm. as his actual father. That's how much you know the affection they give. Um, I could say from my um, from my own my own my own father. I think uh, he his father died when he was about five years old, and uh, my grandmother was uh, she struggled to raise two boys, um, especially in Pakistan, in the uh-huh. you could say the seventies, the eighties, and this was just post partition. So um, one of her sisters, uh, she you could say in a way she ad- adopted my father into. Um, from a village setting to Islamabad. Islamabad is a very, you know, it's a very well-developed, yeah, very cosmopolitan state, as you can say. So my father spent, uh, you could say, about maybe uh, one and a half decades uh, away from his mother. Oh, she she will obviously visit, but um, yeah, you know, that sense of community within family uh, is there, and I'm sure it is there in pretty much most... um, most uh, settings and most cultures uh so yeah this needs to be promoted and you know as you've mentioned your own uh, example of uh, wanting to do it uh, it's 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 a very beautiful example yeah thank you very much i would like to uh, you use the word promote i really would like to i must admit that amongst my peers my my friends so called I've never seen any of them do it. But a lot of them have lived here perhaps as long as myself or even longer. And I don't really know what makes them not want or made them because, you know, they're obviously older now, uh, but they've never done it. Mm. And they think that um, I take on a lot 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe it's just God. You know, God chooses different people to do it, uh, do things. And I was raised by grandparents. Mm-hmm. You know, even though my parents were alive, I <coughs> was raised by two sets of grandparents. Mm-hmm. And I actually am an adopted uh, child officially because when I was due to come to this country, my father was here with his wife. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, I haven't really even ever asked him, why he had to adopt me but i assumed that at that time the law because he hadn't married my mother and he was in england you know the law was that he had to adopt me legally to bring Mm -hmm. me to england Mm -hmm. um so i am an adopted child if you like in my own way um and as i say it's just the blessing of god really because if i i can't give myself the credit for it apart from the fact that i'm glad that god gave me the opportunity and still I still, you know, unfortunately now my children are grown away from the house and it's just me in a four-bedroom house. And I actually look at these things about adoption and I think, but then I have to take into account my age, my not that they would refuse necessarily, but my health. Mm -hmm. And also now my children think I need to stop fussing around (laughs) people (laughs) and live my life, which is nice, but I think it is a sin that a single woman should be occupying a four-bedroom house. I've I've taken in people even this year, Hmm. to be honest, adults, and then they've left and gone their own way, and also I do hosting for overseas students. I can't get it out of my blood. (laughs) <laughs> of course you can't, I'm sure. So, I mean, and it sounds like a very rewarding experience for you. And, and, and therefore, I can totally understand why you want to do it again. Yeah, but I just think that if we could get that as part of an accepted um, way, I don't know how we can do it, because as I say, the structure in England is so very different and so formalized and everything is about um, scrutiny and it comes down to economics, as we know, right? Um, but to get people who may have the heart, I'm not the only person in the world or in England or in London who has the heart to do it, but people, I think some people might be scared, oh, what if something happens and so on and so on. But I don't let fear drive me. I let faith drive me, number one. Mm. And as I said, with the child I mentioned to you, which was one of many over the years, she came at 15. I told the actual authorities, I said, I will take her, but you've got to let me set my own rules. And I did. Mm-hmm. And she progressed. And, you know, I handed her back to her mother safe and sound. And now she's got her own business plus she's a nurse. And I feel very proud of her. You know, so God is good. And I think if we trust God more than being fearful of the authorities, then maybe we could create a better society. I cannot you know? agree more. Absolutely, Asina. And God is great. Absolutely. So uh, thank you once again, um, Hasina. Thank you very much for for calling in and thank you very much for sharing your own experience. It was very heartrending. Thank you. Thank you very much. You take care. So that was uh, Hasira calling in um, after having listened to to the discussion we were having uh, around adoption. Right. So, um, Brother Thawi, coming towards the uh, end of the show, uh, what are the rewards for adopting children in Islam? Well, in Islam, adopting a child is seen through a unique lens. The Quran guides believers to care for orphaned and needy children while honoring their true family heritage. The emphasis 
is on using names of their biolog- biological fathers as stated in chapter 33 verse 6 call them by the names of their fathers that is more equitable in the sight of Allah this islamic principle reflects compassion for vulnerable children valuing their genuine identity while the formal adoption process as known in the west isn't explicitly promoted islam encourages supporting and nurturing these children this support can encompass finan- financial aid education and a loving home all without altering their names or denying their uh, or denying their biological roots even the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him set an example of adoption in islam by adopting by adopting hazrat zaid may allah be pleased with him this noble act demonstrated the importance of caring for orphans and providing them with the love and support irrespective irrespective of biological ties it showcased the significance of treating Uh, of treating adopted children with kindness and equity reinforcing the virtue of adoption in islamic teachings in essence the islamic perspective on adoption highlights the essence of compassion care and support for vulnerable children respecting their genuine identity and lineage as integral components of islamic teachings absolutely adoption is a journey filled with both challenges and um and heartwarming rewards in islam adopting a child is considered a noble and virtuous act with meaningful spiritual rewards we can see some of the blessings associated with adoption in islam mentioned by the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him you mentioned uh, the adoption of uh, zaid who was actually a black person and this is going back 1400 years ago so um this is an example set by the holy prophet uh, you know hundreds of years ago so the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him um said he who makes himself responsible for an orphan who is dependent upon him or upon another till allah makes him independent earns paradise for himself mm. this saying underscores the immense rewards associated with adoption in islam by voluntarily taking responsibility for an orphan or for an orphan and ensuring their well-being and self-sufficiency a person earns not only the blessings of this world but also the promise of eternal bliss in paradise In another instance the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him mentioned that he who brings up three orphans well is like the one who spends his nights in prayer and fasts during the day or is out fighting in the cause of Allah mm. this saying underscores the again the immense goodness of raising three orphans with love and care in Islam comparing it to the spiritual dedication of nightly prayers daytime prayers or even engaging in struggling for the sake of god mm. you know it's it's very important to you to highlight this because um it's it's like being likened to we must have come through this subject so many times you know striving in the cause of allah what yeah. is the meaning of cause uh you know is it is it just physical is it to actually go and uh defend your religion or is you know what is what are some of the more deeper meanings of it and mm. uh this is probably one of the most rewarding uh jihads you could say or this describe yeah. yeah struggles in the cause of allah because um uh you, you, the the many blessings which are attached to it uh, countless narrations mm-hmm. as we've already mentioned uh the the actual role model of the prophet as you also mentioned uh, you gave the beautiful example of uh zed you know a very key figure not just uh, not just the fact that he's adopted but he's a very key figure in the history of islam as well yeah. um you know 
that's the important you know i would like to think of it like this that the prophet so so being an orphan himself um, the most important person mm. uh, from our perspective and from an islamic perspective in the history of mankind and uh, he made very important figures out of people who may may not come across as uh, you know they don't have the they are orphans they don't have the the, the heritage or the, the family the heritage, or the wealth yeah. yeah and they created you know he created uh, supremes out of them yeah. so um just to conclude the adoption is a profound expression of love and commitment it is a testament to the idea that parenthood is not defined by genetics but an unwavering love and dedication to nurturing a child you know this was this ties right in uh from the beginning is what when i said that look i will you know this ex- this excellent line of uh the love is not really related to the blood it's it's a it's an environment that you create whether through biology or adoption the journey of parenthood is a transformative one centered on the boundless uh on the boundless love for a child Absolutely, and uh, let's uh, end by repeating uh, that particular hadith or tradition of the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which we mentioned earlier, which is, um, and I state, um, and I quote, I and the one who looks after an orphan will be like this in paradise, showing his middle and index fingers and separating them. Hmm. And that really illustrates the importance of adoption um, in Islam. Thank you very much. That was our show um, for this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. I must thank uh, our producer, uh, our, our excellent help from the tech room here, um, my co-presenter, uh, or I am the co-presenter, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my co-presenter, and uh, I being the co-presenter, uh, Daniel. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, we shall be back, or there will be another um, episode of the Drive Time Show tomorrow. So do join us for that. Uh, until next week, uh, when Atha will uh, will be back with you. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.